You're listening to a sermon from Red Door Church in Melbourne. For more information, go to reddoorchurch.com.au. If you've been around for any length of time, I've been, this is my eighth year here now, and I, I outed myself really early after coming here. I outed myself as a, a lover of poetry, and it was risky because... You know, it might be one thing, we came from Doncaster, it's one thing in Doncaster, right, in, in, in leafy green, Bible Belt Doncaster, to say that you like poetry, but when you come out here, things are a little different, right, this is the Wild West, this is, uh, this is where, you know, all of your illustrations have to be about sport, or I don't know, other things that I don't know much about, but I came out and said that I like poetry, and, I, I, and the reason I do You've heard me say this before. Here's, here's my theory about why some of us like poetry and all of us pretty much like songs. It's because we all know that there is a huge gap between the reality of the world that we see in its beauty and its terror, in its glory. There's a gap between that reality and our capacity to articulate that reality, right? This is why so often you'll see someone, someone wins the Tour de France or something, or, or they win a, an Academy Award, and they say, what do they say? I, I'm lost for words. That's what they say, right? They, because it, it's difficult for us when we're used to using language to describe mundane things, day-to-day things, to then suddenly be able to articulate these tremendous realities that we see around us. I think that's what drives things like poetry, the best kind of hip-hop and rap, you know, the, the only kind worth looking at, which is all about the lyric and not just about the, the beat or the, the girls or the Rolls Royce or whatever. Best kind of hip-hop, the best kind of songwriting is driven by this sense that we see profound things and we're trying to articulate them. That's why if you experience something great, like the birth of your first child, the best thing you can do in response to that is to write a poem, write a song, be, get creative in your attempt to describe the profound experience that you've just had. So that's why Paul, here in our passage, puts together one of the earliest pieces of Christian art that we have. One of the earliest pieces of Christian art is here written in this poem. And I love how the CSB lays it out like a poem, right? It's got a little indent there. It shows you this is not just a normal part of his letter. He is getting poetic. And we don't have time to go into all of the literary structure and stuff that would bore you anyway. But there is, it's, it's really um, creatively, artistically put together. Paul uses all this wordplay and synonym and and stuff that the early, the early recipients of the letter would have got and would have appreciated, even if we don't. So what I want to do is just make our way through this poem and just see the picture that Paul paints for us of the supremacy of Jesus over all things. And here's what you need to know about the poem. It has a purpose. It has a direction. It has a pathway. He wants to take us from creation in the beginning through to new creation, that is, resurrection. And, and he takes us on this journey from creation to new creation, showing us how Jesus is at the centre of the whole thing. History 
Eternity is about the Lord Jesus. You ready? Some of you dads didn't get your eggs in bed this morning, I think, because... I hope you're ready. This is, this is amazing. Verse 15, let's have a look at that, and, and verse 16. Paul says, he, that's Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For everything was created by him in heaven and on earth, the visible and the invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. So let me just pick up on some of those key, um, key images in the poem. Okay, First of all, he says, Jesus is the image of the invisible God. So this is what we know about God. He's invisible. You talk to my kids, that's one of the first things they'll say about God because they're upset about it. They, they wish God was visible. They want, to, they want to see him. They want to touch him. I've, especially my boy Judah, he's like a little, he's like a little Thomas, right? He's, just, he's like, I, I believe in God, but I really want to see him, okay? So the problem is God is spirit. God is invisible. No one has seen God. And so the, the, one of the, the most profound things about Jesus' incarnation, right, Jesus becoming a man, is that for the first time we see God. Jesus is the image of the invisible. He is God in human flesh. He is invisible made visible. So if you want to, if you want to, if you're here this morning and maybe this is all kind of new to you, you've just got a basic question like, what is God like? That's a great first question to have when you're starting to investigate these things. What is God like? The answer is, God is like Jesus. Because Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Jesus reveals who God is. And so if you want to know what God is like, you need to go to his words and his word. Right, His words in Scripture are God's self-revelation. This is what I'm like. I'm writing down. This is my diary. You can see what, what I'm like. And then the word, capital W, word of God reveals who God is as well. That's Jesus. Now, this is good news if you know what Jesus is like. If, you know, if you've read through John's Gospel... Or like we did earlier, earlier on this year, uh, last year, this year, we looked at Mark's gospel, right? You, you read through that, you see what Jesus is like in, in bottomless love, compassion, mercy, power, right? That's what God is like. Which is really important because without that, we don't know. It could go either way, right? If you have a being who is omnipotent, right? Powerful beyond limit. And omnipresent, right? He's everywhere. And omniscient, he knows all things. If you have that kind of God, that's a dangerous God to deal with. He could do anything. He could snuff you out right now. And that's the kind of God's that these people in Colossae 
used to worship. Before they became Christians, they worshiped those kind of gods. Roman gods, Greek gods, they were powerful, but they were also, they were also easily angered. And not just easily angered, they were kind of like arbitrary in the way that they dealt with people. They didn't see uh, the righteous and reward them and punish the wicked. They just did whatever they wanted. It was, a, it was a game to them, to these Greek and Roman gods. They would toy with people. Humanity was their kind of pet to play with. And so Paul is writing to these people who know a God or used to worship gods like that, and he's reassuring them the real God The invisible God, he's not like that. He's good. He's Jesus. I love that line in uh, the last, uh, no, in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, where the beavers are explaining to the children who have just come into Narnia what Aslan is like. Aslan being representative of Jesus in that world. C.S. Lewis was trying to think of a world that was different to our world and what would God look like in that world? And he came up with this image of Aslan. And as they're describing Aslan to the children, Susan, one of the girls, says, is, so is, is Aslan a man? And the beavers who are describing it to her, they say, a man? Of course he's not a man. He's the king. Aslan is a lion. And her response is to get scared and say, well, I don't know how I feel about meeting a lion. Is he quite safe? And Mr. Beaver says, safe? Who said anything about safe? Of course he's not safe, but he is good. And that's a great description of God, the God who we worship. He's all-powerful limitless in capacity, but we can trust him because he's good. We can trust him because Jesus is what God is like. So he's the image of the invisible God, Jesus is. He's also the firstborn of creation. Now, we need to stop right there and say, this does not mean, as some have supposed and some sects, and whole religions are built up around this idea that Jesus, firstborn of creation means Jesus was the first thing created. Right? There's, there's God up in heaven and the first, firstborn of creation, the first thing he creates is Jesus. And Jesus is the, the first. That's not what this means. Firstborn is, and would have been very clear to these, the first readers, but firstborn is an Old Testament word which is meant to convey authority and privilege. So the firstborn of a household is the heir of the father. If you're the firstborn son in the Old Testament, that means you get everything that the father has. That's what he's trying to say. Jesus is the firstborn. He's a firstborn son. He has authority in God's family. He has an inheritance which is all creation, the firstborn of creation. Everything in creation belongs to him as the father's heir. There's another reason why this can't mean that Jesus is the first created thing, and it's the very next few words, all right? So make sure you read all the words together. It says he's the firstborn. Hang on, let me find it. He's the firstborn over all creation for how many things were created by him? 
Everything. Everything that was created was created by him or it can be in him. Everything in heaven and on earth, visible, invisible, rulers, right? Thrones, dominions, rulers, authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. That's another way of saying he's not created. He's actually the creator of all these things. And it can get a little bit confusing because you, you, know, you think, well, hang on, so Jesus is the creator. I thought the Father was the creator and then Jesus was the heir of creation. Here's, here's the point that he's making and it's clear from the first, the second verse of the whole Bible. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the Trinity, God three in one, were all involved in and, and agents in the creation of the universe. So in Genesis 1, 2, you see it have the spirit hovering as the creation comes about, ex nihilo, out of nothing, by the word of the Father, through the agency of the Son. All things have been created through him and for him. And before we get all hung up on how that all works together in our minds, the point that Paul wants to make is really simple. The point he wants you to know is that Jesus is Lord over all things. There's nothing that escapes his reach. In fact, there was nothing that was not made by him and for him. Everything is subservient to him. Not just the things we can see, but visible and invisible things. Thrones and dominions, all the whole hierarchy of power on earth and in the things that we can't see, that is in the spiritual realm, all of that is not only created by him, but also for him. All of those things are under his authority. That's the point. This is really important to the people in Colossae because remember, they've come out of paganism, they've come out of multiple gods, and they've got this real keen fear of demonic, dark spirits. It keeps them up at night. And so Paul wants to reassure them all that stuff. He doesn't say it doesn't exist. He just says it's all under Jesus' authority. we got this... Th- thing going on at the moment with my boy Judah. It's really come out of nothing. At night time, he's, uh, he's just getting really worried. He's saying, Daddy, Daddy, I need you. I need you. I need you to, I need you to sleep with me. And, I, and I, I cracked it last night. I didn't, like, I didn't get angry. I mean, I cracked the code last night when I was speaking to him, and it finally came out. He was like, um, this girl at school... Her sister got stolen by thieves. They came in through the window and they stole her. I was like, buddy, I'm pretty sure that didn't happen. I think we would have heard about that on the news. He's like, no, it's real. I won't mention the girl's name because she's a liar. But she, she's been telling him, yeah, my, I had, like, I, I'm assuming she doesn't have an older sister, but her explanation for not having an older sister is that she got stolen by thieves. And so I've been trying to encourage Judah that he doesn't need to worry 
because Jesus is with him. And the reason that he shouldn't worry is because Jesus is Lord of all. There's no one stronger than Jesus. And there's no one that escapes from his grasp. Now, I haven't said, and therefore nothing bad will ever happen to you. Because that's not true. But I have said, no one is getting away from Jesus. Even these thieves, these master thieves who steal children in the night, they can't get away from Jesus. All powers, all earthly powers, everything created, everything visible and invisible is under him. That's why we call him sovereign. That's why we call him king. That's why we call him Lord over all things. So there's Jesus at the center of creation and Lord over all creation. And then he moves in this poem, he moves into the present age, from creation to the present. All right, so what's going on now? He says, verse 17 to 18a. All right, I'm going to cut it off in the middle of verse 18. Here's what he says He is before all things, and by him all things hold together. He is also the head of the body, the church. So he says, He's before all things. This is a statement about time. And rank, all right, before all things, because he was literally before all things. Before there was anything, there was him, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. So he's before all things in time and in rank, he's before all things. No one is before him. You look on the org chart of the universe, no one comes before him. And by him, all things hold together. Right? He's saying in the universe, the whole universe is held together in harmony by Jesus. Again, we need to go back to these people, these Colossians, right? They're growing up with Greek philosophy in the first century. And in the first century, they didn't have an idea of one God. They had, you know, gods for everything. They had gutter gods, they had sewage gods, right? they had a god for everything. But they had this idea that over all of the gods and all of the universe, there was a power called the logos. The logos, which is the Greek word for, for word. And this word was the thing that held everything together, where you have all of this chaotic competing hierarchy of spirits and people and stuff going on in the universe and it's all a little bit chaotic. It's the word that brings about order out of chaos. And that's why John begins his, his gospel written to Greek people by saying, in the beginning was the word. They say, yeah, we know that, the logos. In the beginning was the logos. And, Jesus, and John says, and that word, that logos, is Jesus. He unmasks the Logos and gives him a face. That's Jesus. And that's exactly the, the kind of thing that Paul's getting at here. In a, in a world that you're familiar with, Colossians, where, where everything's a bit chaotic and, and there is this vague power that is holding all things together, he's saying, yeah, that's Jesus. All things hold together by him. Him. 
And that guy, that Logos, that leader, that Lord, he is also our head. Remember that image of the church as a body? Well, Jesus is the head. That same one who holds the universe in order. And if you don't understand much about the universe, you could go down a rabbit hole for the rest of your life discovering magnificent things about the universe and just how ordered it is. It's one of the great arguments for there being some kind of supernatural God at the heart of it all. Just how orderly it is. It doesn't make sense. What we should find is just chaos and destruction, but instead we find beauty and harmony. Paul says that one who's, who is conducting the harmony of the universe in symphony, he is also our head. He's also the leader of the church. And so we can trust him with the universe and we can trust him with our family, our spiritual family. And here's where we go wrong as Christians, and we've done it since this poem was written and we continue to do it today. Whenever we take Jesus and swap him out from being the head of the church, we say, you can do the universe stuff, but we'll have our own head. We've got a pope. We've got a priest. We've got a pastor. He'll be the one that we trust and follow and rely on. That's when the church collapses. That's when you get all manner of horrors happening in the church because you took the logos, you took the creator and sustainer of all things and swapped him out for a a counterfeit. So don't do that. He's the head of the body, the church. And so he's gone from creation to the present age, and now he looks ahead to new creation. And for some of you, this might be a new idea to you this morning, that this is the whole, the kind of the thrust of Christianity, the trajectory of the Christian story. We're heading for new creation. It's a better, better word than heaven. All right? It's more descriptive of what the Bible tells us. We're heading for new creation. Creation, present age, new creation. Let's read a bit about it, 18b to 20. He says, he is the beginning. Jesus is the beginning, the firstborn, again that word, the firstborn from the dead, so that he might come to have first place in everything. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, in Jesus, and through him to reconcile everything to himself, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Man, there's a seven-week series, right? We're trying to do the whole thing. Like we got, there's seven weeks there. Let's see if we can get through it in the time we've got left. So first of all, what does he say? He says, Jesus is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. What he means is he's the beginning of a new creation, the beginning of a new humanity. And this new creation is marked by resurrection. So Jesus, when he dies, he's really dead. And then he goes into a tomb for three days. And when he rises again, he rises again with his body. Remember that? He walked around for 40 days and people saw him, hundreds of them, right? He ate fish with them and he let 
Thomas touches hands and he's not a ghost. He's a, he's a resurrection. He has a resurrected body. Never again will he experience decay or death in the body. And what Paul is saying here is he's the first to do that of many. Everyone who has been reconciled to God through him, that's their destiny as well. It's resurrection life. So here's three, three things at least in this poem that that means for us and for this world, all right? First of all, he says, that fact that Jesus rose from the dead, that fact that he is now ruling and reigning over all things in his resurrection body, that fact makes him supreme in the universe. That's why he says he's the beginning of the firstborn from the dead, so that he might come to have first place in everything. He's supreme. So in this resurrection, Jesus goes from having by right all things, all things belong to him by right as God, he goes from having the right to all things to actually claiming them. That happens through his death and resurrection. So this is the way that Paul writes about it in Philippians in chapter 2. You remember this is another work of Paul's or, or an early Christian, another work of uh, art. It's an early hymn. And this is what he says about Jesus. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death on a cross, so that for this reason, God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, right? All creation and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You've got two pieces of art mirroring each other here. Two early poems, two early songs written about the supremacy of Jesus. He takes everything that rightly belongs to him as he rises from the dead, conquering Satan, sin, and death. So that's the first thing. It makes Jesus supreme. He's the goat, right? He is the greatest of all time. Number two, he, he reconciles us to God. That's why I included the little intro to the poem. We looked at it last week. This is what Jesus achieves back in verse 13 to 14. He has rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of the son he loves. That's new creation. In him we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And we talked a whole lot about that last week if you want to go and check it out. Uh, online, But that's what Jesus has achieved in his death and his resurrection. He's reconciled us to God. We were enemies. We were enemies, right? He says this in verse 21. Once you were alienated and hostile in your minds, expressing your evil, expressing your evil actions. So even when we were like that, Jesus dies and rises again. And as he goes to claim what is rightfully his that is, supremacy over all creation, he takes us with him. He transfers us from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of God. 
Now, here's the thing. All of that you might have heard before. Here's the third part, which I think we have neglected for a couple hundred years, but Paul was really clear about. The third part is that not only we, individuals, those of us in the church, not only we will be made new, recreated, resurrected, but all creation will be resurrected. This is the hope of Christianity. This is the plan of God in salvation history. It's creation, fall, back to creation, new creation. So here's here's what he says, right? Let me reread that last bit. God was pleased, verse 19, God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, in Jesus, and through him, right, through his obedience, his life, his death, his burial, his resurrection, his ascension, through him to reconcile everything to himself, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. That's how powerful the blood of Jesus shed is It brings about a whole new creation. So Christian hope is not platonic, right? Most of us, just in our culture today, have a sort of platonic view of the universe, and and that's this. There, There is good, which is spirit, and then there is bad, which is flesh. And some of us have this idea of heaven where God will take us and, and just take the good part of us, our soul, and, and he'll, he'll take that up to heaven where it will just f- sort of float around. And, and, and all the bad stuff about us, like our flesh, our meat, all of that will be left down here to rot. That's Platonism. That's not Christian faith. That's not Christian theology. In Christian theology, all things were made by God and all things were made good, including your fingers. Right, including your, the meat of your body, your flesh. And so the resurrection of Jesus is so powerful because it is the, it's the example, the summary example of our hope that we ourselves will be resurrected, body and soul, and the earth itself will experience the same resurrection, never to be destroyed again. If you don't get this from Colossians, read the Chronicles of Narnia, especially the last book, the seventh book, The Last Battle, and you will see this in fiction. This is new creation. This is our great hope as followers of Jesus, literally followers of Jesus. He has gone before us. He's the firstborn from the dead. He's the first to experience this resurrection and all of us follow in his wake. All of us have the same almost unthinkable expectation that we will experience resurrection. And by the way, the earth is doing it as well. Remember Romans 8? Creation itself groans. Groans in anticipation like a woman giving birth, groaning in anticipation of what will be brought forth. That creation itself will be restored and recreated. So one poem and you get the cosmic history of God's work 
in redemption and restoration and recreation. And I really like the way that N.T. Wright summarizes the poem, all right? So I'm just going to read from a, from a, a commentary that he wrote. He says, We are now in a position to survey the poem in its totality and to access the contribution it makes to the developing thought of the letter, okay? This is how it kind of frames up the rest of what we're going to discover in the coming five weeks. The Colossian Christians and their modern counterparts, us here in this room today, are to thank God because in Jesus Christ he has revealed himself to be the one God of all the earth, the, the creator and redeemer of all. Jesus is not one more rival to the gods of paganism. He is supreme. He reigns supreme over all. He has given himself to his world in loving self-sacrifice to create out of sinful humanity a people for his own possession with the intention of eventually bringing the entire universe into a new order and harmony. All this he has done in and through Jesus, his son, his own perfect human self-expression. It's a beautiful poem. It's an attempt to paint a picture of a reality that is probably actually beyond comprehension. And yet I pray and have been praying and we have been praying that we would be this morning captured by, captivated by, right? Captivated, captured, held captive by that image of Jesus ruling and reigning over all things. Our resurrection hope, our King and our Saviour. Now I made a few more scribbles about the rest of this passage, but I'm going to leave that over to next week. It's actually a good little introduction to next week's passage, so we'll leave it till then. But right now, I just want us to respond, really. All we can do is respond. And if you've, if you, if you've captured that image and you believe it, then the next best thing for us to do is not chat about it, discuss it, deconstruct it, or even pray through it, but just to sing the praises of that great God who has saved us. So we're going to do that. We're going to stand. We're going to sing God's praises. Why don't you come up and um, you guys can lead us in, in a couple of songs. And, and as we're singing, if you want to move from just praise of who God is in Jesus and, and, and move into prayer and asking God perhaps to reveal more of himself to you or perhaps to increase your trust in his goodness or perhaps for the first time to receive grace and forgiveness and mercy, any of those things, then we'll be over here and, and really excited and eager to pray with you as we sing. Let's do it.